Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27, and let me read down through verse 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that, one of, than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you and we ask for your help as we look into your word. We know that your scripture is given to us for our good, to teach us about who you are, to remind us about who we are. Lord, as we come to this topic, there's much that we want to understand and know about you and your plans and what you have to say to us and why we need to pay attention in this area of our lives. Father, I don't want to say less or more than I should. Father, I pray that you would, your spirit would use your word to impact hearts, to instruct where necessary, to convict where necessary, to expose where necessary, to comfort where necessary, to, to remind us of, of what it is that we are here for as a people in following you to think carefully in this area of our lives. So we ask for your help, and we ask for uh, your grace in our lives this morning as we walk through this passage together. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Adultery of the heart. We live in an age, we live in a culture that is extremely confused about the topic of sex. We live in a culture that is in somewhat in chaos in terms of what is what is uh, the sexual relationship and how should we understand it and what are the permission and guidelines and boundaries that God has established and we live in a culture that that for many doesn't care what God has to say in this topic and in fact who who is God and why would God speak into this area of our lives and why would God try to put parameters on something that we as individuals ought to freely be able to express that's the way our culture would look into this topic. So we have a lot of confusion. The, the culture around us is trying to write their own rules when it comes to sex, and rules are being rewritten, and, and, and the church's take on this topic is not welcome in the broader culture. The broader culture doesn't seem to, seems to restrict the Christian teaching or the Christian sexual ethic as one that's very repressive, as one that's very backwards, as one that's very 1800-ish at best. So how, how, is we, how are we as Christians supposed to conduct our lives when the culture is so negative towards a Christian ethic when it comes to the Christian morality and the Christian sexual ethic? How should we think about these things? How important is the marriage relationship? And so why, why should we as individuals work for the purity of the heart when it comes to God's good design in the sexual relationship of marriage? How should we think about this? So not only is the culture extremely, extremely confused, there's a lot of chaos in the culture today when it comes to this area, but secondly, then we've got to look at it and just say it's very prevalent. It's in our faces. Like it's everywhere in terms of the, the over-sexification. That's not a word, but when you think of what the porn, porn industry has done to our culture, when you think of the way that pornography has so pornified relationships and culture, and we, we can't go anywhere without having sex thrust into our face in terms of 
things that we read, things on TV, movies, books, culture, entertainment, whatever it is, it's, it's around us all the time, and so we need to think very, very carefully, how are we as Christians supposed to engage and walk? How are we supposed to understand God's design for this part of the marriage relationship? Now, when I start with such a negative, bleak view of the culture and the world around us, what I don't want to do is give the impression that sex is dangerous and needs to be avoided at all costs, right? Sex is very powerful, but what I want to encourage us with is that, that God's design for the marriage relationship is a good and beautiful thing. This was God's idea. God is the one who came up with this concept. And you look in the garden, in, in the book of Genesis, where the man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and the two become one flesh. You look at the spiritual union, the mingling of souls. There's something special in that relationship that we want to celebrate and see as good, that properly given, in its, in its properly God-given context, context between one man and one woman within the confines of a marriage relationship, this is a great thing. This is something that God has designed. This is something, this is why his instructions to have this area of our life protected and guarded become so important, become something that we want to tune into. And so I want, while, while on the one hand having to talk about the dangers of this topic, I want us to see at the same time God's good design and recognize the, the beautiful relationship that he has created between husband and wife, one man, one woman, for a lifetime. That activity, the sexual activity, constrained to that marriage relationship. And I want us to think, then, how should we think about this? You see, Jesus uses this example. He uses the area of adultery and lust, and he's going to help us understand what he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're walking through this passage by passage, and that's why we're going to deal with such a difficult topic today, because it comes next in the verses. And for parts of this that may be uncomfortable for you to hear, I assure you, it's uncomfortable for me to talk about. But Jesus talks about it. He uses it as a great illustration of the truth that he's trying to present. And so we want to tune into it. We want to press into it, because this is, this is very, very central as an example of what Jesus is trying to help people understand. In Matthew chapter 5, he, he, he's teaching, he's driving, he's going to keep taking his hammer and driving this nail home just a little bit further every time that, that there's a new kind of righteousness. There is a different kind of righteousness that his followers need to have. People who are Jesus people and live with Jesus as the ruler of their life, when they submit to his rule and control in their life, their lives are going to look different. It's going to look very different from the righteousness that they were used to around them. If you look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, Jesus says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness, think of goodness, unless your goodness, your righteousness, exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This was such a radical thought. The scribes and the Pharisees were the best of the best. They were the most righteous people. And, and, and yet Jesus is saying, no, that's not what gets you into heaven. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were, they were rule keepers to the nth degree. They could perfectly check the box, right? They could perfectly see ways that they hadn't broken certain rules, 
And Jesus comes and says, wait a minute, there's a different kind of righteousness. There's a different kind of goodness that you need to be one of God's children in the kingdom of heaven. Last week, we had this quote for you by Craig Keener. God never wanted people merely to obey rules. He wanted them to be holy as he is, to value what he values. And over and over and over, he's going to keep coming back and say, listen, it's not about the rules. It's not about your actions. It's about the heart being holy. It's about the heart being changed. It's about the heart being made pure. And last week, Jesus said that with anger. Look, some of you, most of you can say, I've never killed someone. I've never committed murder. But Jesus says, in your heart when you are angry with a brother, well, that's that same violent, murderous spirit, and your heart needs changed. And Jesus is going to use now the example of adultery and lust. And he's going to hold it up as another example saying, look, there's, there's a new measuring stick. There's a different standard. There's, here's what it looks like for people who are Jesus people to live life morally pure. This is going to be our example this week. If you're taking notes, here's the one thing that I would like you to remember. You can write this down, and I want us to keep coming back to this. Think about it in this area of our lives. Here's what I want us to follow. Purity is found in our hearts before our actions. Purity is found in our hearts before our actions. I want us to walk through Jesus' teaching, what he has to say about adultery and lust, and hopefully it helps us with this concept, helps us remember that purity is first found in our hearts before it's found in our actions. And if we're just looking to our actions, have I ever committed fill-in-the-blank sin? Did I actually fill-in-the-blank action? If that's the measuring stick we're using, then, then we're not understanding what Jesus ethic is for his followers when it comes to moral purity, when it comes to having this sort of a right relationship with God and those around us. Purity is found in our hearts before our actions. Now, I want to try to walk through this carefully. This is a sensitive topic. It, it no doubt touches lives in this room because uh, uh, of the variants of our backstories, and we know that families and homes and individuals and relationships have been hurt and touched by this sin. And so we want to walk through it very, very carefully. We want to, uh, I will try to walk through it with grace as we try to think carefully about this. There is a stern warning that's needed. I recognize that there's different groups of people in this room. In a crowd this size, it's quite possible that there are some who are stuck in secret sin and hanging on to that sin and loving it and no desire to change. And there's a sense that conviction is needed, that God, by his Holy Spirit, would, would break loose those chains. There are others that feel stuck in sin, but they hate the sin. They love God and wish they could get rid of the sin. They realize this sin has no place in the life of a believer. And so I hope to give some encouragement and instruction to say, listen, this, this really is important. We need to fight. Then there, there are others who are mature and walking with Christ and yet, like all human beings, struggle with temptation in this area, some to more degrees than others. And so I want to walk through this with encouragement to say, listen, this is why it's important. This is why we as individuals want to seriously take Jesus' instructions and walk through them carefully. And, and yet, we want to be careful. Don't stand before you as someone perfect and flawless. The church is not the collection. To, to be a part of God's church is not to be perfect. It's to be forgiven. We recognize that. We understand that. Um, often, it, it's too easy. I don't think this is necessarily true, but the perception that can come across as is, 
is as if the church only talks about this area and there's certain sins that we throw stones at and we cast certain thrones at a certain group of people or certain manifestations of sin uh, and we act as if we're perfect on the inside. That's not the Christian gospel. That's not the truth of the fact that sinners can be saved by grace. I don't know, I don't, I, I do, I've met very few people, I don't know anyone that doesn't struggle with sin in this area, and so we want to tune into it and walk through it carefully as a people. We're not saying that Christians are perfect and don't sin in this area. We're saying here's, here's how we should be living and how should we respond when God, by His grace, when the Holy Spirit brings conviction and points out sin in our life, how, how should we change? How should we grow? You see, as the church, we are now not out here setting up the standard that there's only certain sexual sins that God condemns. Most people I know of above the age of puberty are sexual sinners. And that's something that perhaps we haven't been consistent in, in proclaiming as a church and with our gospel witness, that it's not just certain sins that we are against as a church. You will see Jesus' instructions that, that he is against even the lustful looks. And so we want to take it very, very seriously because we realize that this is something that affects our lives. Not only is the world around us in chaos, but it's in front of our faces every single day, and so we need to deal with it. Purity is found in our hearts. Excuse me. Purity is found in our hearts before our actions. So let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at verse 27. And here's what Jesus has to say. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. We talked about this last week, that six times this phrase is going to come up. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. Jesus is going back, and he's, he's not correcting the Old Testament law. He's not changing the Old Testament law. He's correcting their misunderstanding. He's correcting their misapplication of Old Testament law. And so he takes some example from Old Testament law, whether it was a direct quote from the Old Testament or some of their teaching on the law, and he says, listen, but l let me show you what you've missed. Jesus says, but I say unto you, let, let me show you what you properly would have understood. And this is what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said to those of, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now this is a direct quotation. He's going back to the seventh commandment in the Old Testament that you shall not commit adultery. Why was this such a big deal? Why was the fact that that in the way that God has created and designed for sex to exist in married relationships, why was it important not to commit adultery? Our culture is confused in the sense of boiling this down to an issue of consent. Today, our culture will often say if there's two consenting individuals, Many will still frown on the marriage contract being broken, but some won't. Some will encourage and say, if there's consent, this is not an issue. But this was not God's original plan. His original plan was covenant. That as, as, a, as, as, a, as a contract, as a promise, as a, a, a sealed sign witness on the marriage relationship that the union of a man and a woman, the two becoming one, was part of the covenantal relationship, that there's this continual promise that the marriage relationship is good and designed by God. And therefore, adultery was prohibited by God because th there's a direct violation of our, our relationship with God as individuals. This is not the way God has designed. Therefore, if you go outside that relationship, this is adultery. This is breaking God's design. And therefore, God says, if you're going to be holy as I am holy, there's no room for this. And so you need to God places this admonition and warning that there's not allowed to be adultery in the marriage relationship. So then, verse 28. So that, that, that was obvious. Many people in the day understood that, at least those in the Jewish 
culture, those Hebrews would have understand and still agreed with the adultery. Not so in the, in the broader Greco-Roman culture, but I'll speak to that in just a moment. Verse, verse 28, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here Jesus gets very personal and practical, and he says, Wait a minute, if you think that you have kept the seventh commandment just because you haven't actually had the, uh, committed the physical act of adultery, Jesus is saying, Wait a minute, even the lustful glances, these, these desires, if you wish you could, even though you haven't actually had the opportunity, Jesus is saying, well, you, you've broken the commandment. There's been adultery in the heart. This is an issue of adultery and the heart. And therefore, purity is first found in our hearts before it's ever found in our actions. And Jesus is saying, listen, some of you think you can check the righteous box because you've never actually committed adultery. But Jesus is saying, what about the heart? What about the thoughts? What about the intentions and the desires? And Jesus is making the same point that he made with anger, that when these desires are there in the heart, it's just as wrong. So how do we think about this admonition and this verse? In, in verse 28, let me just say this, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, uh, part of what Jesus is doing there and the words that he's using, this is, this is in the, in the uh, you could almost say, who, everyone who continuously looks. When someone is planning to look and then lets the thought linger and continues to develop that thought wishing that there was a way to actually act on the thought. So this is not what Jesus is not doing. He's not saying that attraction or to notice the attractiveness. He's not condemning that anyone who even thinks that way is wrong. What he's saying is those who entertain the thought and who linger on it and perhaps even plan purposefully to look this way and wish that they could act on it. This is what Jesus is condemning at this point. You have a quote in your bulletin by Martin Luther, and I think we have this for you on the screen as well. He says this, It is impossible to keep the devil from shooting evil thoughts and lusts into our heart. But see to it that you do not let such arrows stick there and take root, but tear them out and throw them away. I, I love that quote. And he, here, here's the balance and the tension that we all find ourselves in. In a world that is so in our face with this, it will be impossible at times not to notice. But what do we do? We work to fight. We work uh, to, to keep our thoughts elsewhere and to say, that is not a thought I will entertain. I will not go down that road. I work frequently with my children the two oldest, at least, at times, have brought questions to us. I remember what my father told me, and I've passed on that same analogy that perhaps some of your parents told you, that, look, you, you can't stop a bird from flying over the tree, right? But if the bird lands in the, tr in the branch, you shake the branches. You don't let them build the nest. You get that bird out of here. And you know, that, that's fun and humorous to say to an eight-year-old. But it's no different for us as adults, right? When the thought comes in, you don't purposely linger. You don't continually continue to think with lustful intent and allow that thought to go on. And that's what Jesus is saying here, that, that, when, that when those lines are crossed, when those thoughts are engaged, when those thoughts are uh, fostered and enjoyed and perhaps even wondering how plans could be put into place to act on them. Jesus is saying, wait a minute, we've got a problem. You don't actually have to get to the point where you actually commit adultery. Jesus is saying that right here, these thoughts of the heart. So one of the things to notice, and one of the things that our world will tell us is, why, why do we as a church speak into this issue? Jesus didn't cast stones. He, he only loved people. If you understand what Jesus was saying... He, he wasn't just saying that certain sexual relationships outside of God's design are wrong. 
He was saying sexual thoughts outside of God's design are wrong. He, he went for the jugular, so to speak. He drew a line that was impossible to measure up to. And, and he took the issue very, very seriously. Now, how do we understand why did Jesus talk about this? And, and certainly, it's something that I wrestled with this week because the Old Testament, well, the Old Te Jesus was not the first to connect the seventh commandment with the physical act of adultery with the thoughts and intents of the heart. Job himself said that he made a covenant with his eyes, if you go to back to Job chapter 31. And Job says that, I made a covenant with my eyes, how then could I gaze upon a young virgin? And he continues to walk that out and what that looks like, knowing that it would affect his relationship with God. Job knew that the thoughts of his heart were uniquely tied to the physical actions and his relationship with God. The 10th commandment talks about, uh, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, among other things. Talks about covetousness. So there's quite a few connections between the heart and the actual act, even in the Old Testament. But some of the people had misunderstood it. Also, why does Jesus focus in then on, I'm coming back to that question of how would the original hearers have understood, why did Jesus give the instruction in the way that he did? Number one, they, they'd already seen some of this connection in the Old Testament. But number two, why then does Jesus address it just to men? Why does he talk about, it's, it's the man's lustful glances towards another woman. By the way, well, I'll speak to that in just a second. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, certainly, we know uh, that don't take this as just instruction to men, though sometimes we might think of some of these things as sins that men are more easily tempted to. We know that we live in an age where, where all of us are sinners and easily tempted in this area. And so I do think there's some, a, a reason perhaps that Jesus is particularly addressing this to men, but realize that the admonition and the encouragement goes both ways and would go to all of us. It wouldn't just be lustful glances, but it could be the things that we read, the, the places that we allow our mind to wander, the things that we watch from an entertainment standpoint. So let's think through this. Remember that it is very, very easy for me, even as I started out in saying that we live in a world that is so in chaos when it comes to its sexual brokenness, it's easy for us to think this is the worst it's ever been. Our society is the most broken that humans have ever been. But we would be mistaken to think that. In fact, the, 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 the Greco-Roman culture that Jesus was addressing was very, very vile, very, very profane, even in these areas of morality. How would they have understood adultery? Primarily, they would have understood adultery as only happening uh, with that a, again, not necessarily the Jews that Jesus was talking to, uh, but the, in, the, in the wider Roman culture, they saw adultery as wrong, not so much because of a moral purity standpoint, but because of an issue of ownership. I'm going to say some things that are hurtful and offensive to women. I'm not telling you they're true. I'm not, and in fact, Jesus contradicts it. But our society certainly recognizes it as wrong. That in that culture and age, women were looked at as property of their husbands. And therefore, adultery was wrong, not for moral purity reasons, but because you were stealing another man's property. Therefore, the wife in a relationship, she wasn't allowed to have relations outside of marriage, but if the man wanted to have relations outside of marriage, as long as he didn't do that with another married woman, adultery hadn't happened in their minds. They, they had all kinds of loopholes around this that, that somehow the man had extra rights compared to what the woman had. 
Again, not in the Jewish culture, but in the wider Roman culture. And so therefore, they, they, they clearly did not understand this. And when you understand that, now Jesus' point, he doesn't say, whoever, whoever looks with lustful intent at a wife, he uses, he uses a word which can mean either woman or wife, but there's no possessive, there's no, there's no identifying uh, word associated with it. He doesn't say another man's wife. He simply just says woman, and Jesus says, listen, if anyone even looks at another woman lustfully, you've cro- you didn't understand what adultery was about. So when you understand that, you realize Jesus is really addressing culture where it's at. And he's saying, listen, you thought this was just a, a, a matter of ownership or theft, but no, Jesus does everything he can then to elevate the status of women and to say, listen, this is not an ownership property issue. This is a, this is a, a, a moral purity issue. Why would, you, why would you do this? You hadn't understand, understood God's commands for adultery in the first place when you allow and engage these kinds of thoughts. And so Jesus is trying to rewrite the instructions. He's trying to help them. This is what, he's trying to help them understand that this is what moral purity looks like. And while their culture would have said, look, this is what is sin, this is what isn't, their culture would have had loopholes to get around certain things, Jesus is coming in and saying, wait a minute, it's really about the heart. Jesus is redefining sin away from the act and to the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Author and artist Michael Card says it this way, Jesus redefines the new righteousness by redefining sin itself. Beyond the concrete act, sin begins with the intention of the heart. Sin begins not in dark alleyways, but in darkened imagination. What a great thought for those of us who are Christians and striving for purity in this area. We need to recognize that our hearts are primary battleground number one. We are taking thoughts captive, as Paul says. We are, we are working not to walk and continue in darkness. We don't allow certain thoughts because you can only engage the hearts as the control center of life and allow these sins to be fostered and festered there for so long before they actually then begin to work themselves out in your actions. It's just a matter of time. It's the way the danger of sin works. And if we think sin only happens at the action, Jesus says, we've got it wrong. Back it up to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's where sin starts. And that's the kind of righteousness that people who follow Jesus need. And so Jesus has a couple of really practical, radical instructions then. He says it this way, and the two are kind of parallel, so I'll read them and talk about them together. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What is Jesus saying? I don't believe he's actually advocating for mutilation. There have been those that have tried. And in some of the early centuries of, of the church, some thought, well, perhaps if I am struggling with these temptations, perhaps mutilation will then solve the problem. Well, that won't actually solve the problem. If, if the lustful looking with our eyes is a problem and the eye, if the right eye is removed, you still have the left eye. If the left eye is removed, you still have the mind with memories and imagination. I don't think Jesus is advocating for mutilation, but what he's advocating for is saying, look, this is, this is serious. Sin is so serious that it needs to be mortified. It, it, you need to go on the warpath with sin to make sure that this doesn't gain a foothold in your life. 
People who follow Jesus, when it comes to sin in their lives, take radical measures to make sure that sin is removed so that the heart is protected and guarded so that we don't give opportunity for the devil and for flesh and for footholds to get into our lives and let these things go. And so we radically want to deal with sin. And Jesus is saying, look, sin, this is such that it, it could actually have render an eternal verdict in terms of damnation in hell. And what Jesus is saying is that there are those who walk down the paths of sin and they habitually fall into an unrepentant lifestyle. Jesus is not saying that they will lose their salvation from their sin. Jesus is saying these, these people have so given control and yield over to their hearts to sin, they've never surrendered to who Christ is as the Lord of their life. It's very consistent with what John says in the first gospel of John, that true believers don't practice sin. They don't continually walk in sin. And so recognize that, that, that God, because he loves his children, will bring those moments of conviction God will bring exposure. God will, will bring to light, though in those who are truly his, God will bring sin to light and it will be painful. Um, it will be difficult. There will be consequences. But know that it's the loving hand of God at work who loves his children and who wants to see repentance brought about in their life. And so Jesus is saying, look, it's better to, to take radical measures. Don't foster, don't entertain, don't think this is a little problem. Don't say, well, I love God and I know I've got this little area of my life. Look, if you're struggling in this area, some of you, some of you who love God and you hate this sin and you just want it out of your life, you, you, you need to take maybe more drastic steps than you have taken. This sin in particular causes us to shrink back from others. When I think of the damage that's being done to relationships, and the damage that's being done to marriages and often this sin hides in the shadows and it casts a shadow of shame over you and makes you think, I cannot tell others about this struggle. I cannot open up for help. No one can know that this is a struggle for me. And yet, those kinds of radical steps of confessing sins to one another and asking for accountability and asking brothers and sisters to come along and pray for you, men for men, women for women, and helping you in these struggles, well, this, this is the pathway to freedom and joy. And some of those, some of those um, radical measures are going to need to be taken if you're going to want to see victory in this area. Perhaps there's technology that needs to be gotten rid of. Perhaps there's a more openness and honesty that you need with your spouse or, spouse or others in terms of your schedule and your time and the way that your place, the, the, the places that you are frequenting. It could be that it's, you can't get rid of this sin because it's too easy to hide, right? And those are, I'm speaking to those of you who love God. You know this is wrong. You hate this sin, but you can't, you can't shake it, right? There's a few others probably in this room, a crowd of this size. There's the potential that you, you are hiding it and living a double life. There's no desire to change. Know this. If you're truly God's child, he loves you. He will bring it to light. It will be less painful in the long run for you and for others if you take that first step of exposing it and bringing it to the light. You need conviction out of this this morning. For those of you that are, are trying to live faithfully and you're trying to do your best in walking this out in purity, keep fighting. It really is worth it. The, the, we really need to be people as Jesus people who take our walk with him and our relationship with God as serious, right? And so what, when you think about this sin in particular, 
All sins have this as their root. But what are we doing when we choose to give in and indulge in temptation? We're saying, God, I can't trust you. Your plans aren't good enough for my life. We're saying, God, what, what your promises and your designs won't meet my needs. And so we try to step outside of God's instructions, and, and that doesn't work. It never brings happiness. It never brings flourishing. And, and when our culture has convinced us that this is a means of our identity, that this whole topic is our identity, look, be careful with that concept. I don't see that in Scripture, right? So, so here, here's what will happen. We will say, look, this is who I am. This is my identity. And, and therefore, as if the Christian sexual ethic somehow keeps us from the way that God designed us. Well, l- listen, the most If I was to take this to the logical extreme, what's then being said for those, let's take if you are here this morning and single and God hasn't given you a marriage relationship for this part of your life, our culture would tell you, wow, we're depriving a huge part of who you are that you can't have sexual fulfillment because we're depriving you of your identity. Well, listen, the, the most human person among us who has ever lived and walked this earth, Jesus, did not ex- uh, did not find sexual fulfillment in the way that the world around us is telling us it needs to happen. It was not a part of his life. This is not central to our identity in terms of being able to express it in the ways that we choose and want. We All of us have to fight against what our sinful, broken urges are in order to honor God with even this area of our life. And it's extremely important. And we have to remember, the, if God is good and the authority and the rule giver, then, then we have to live within the context and the boundaries of the rules that he has put in place. And so we want to be careful in thinking through that, even taking radical steps where necessary. I think that hopefully early this week, I'd like to send an email out to the church body. And what it'll have on it is a few practical links, books, resources, websites that uh, myself and Pastor Kevin have found helpful. Perhaps even resources for you as parents that think about how do you talk about this issue with your kids. What resources are helpful for a family as you have technology in the home, as you think about smartphones and devices and tablets? I'm pleading with you as parents, if you are giving these devices to your children, make sure that you are being responsible to have some form of follow-up and communication and boundaries and guidelines. Um, I would also plead with you as parents, as you think about talking with this area of life with your children, don't think of this as one awkward conversation that needs to be had. It will be awkward for you. It will be awkward for your teens. Teens, will it be awkward? I'm sure. I got a few smiles. That was it. That's okay. This, this is a conversation that has to be ongoing. Parents, I'm pleading with you that uh, in appropriate ways, at appropriate ages, continue to, to talk with your children through the years. It is an open book, ongoing dialogue between, with friends and the internet. And parents, you want to be the, the safest, most secure place to get information on this topic and trying to give truth and instruction into this area. So hopefully that email gives you a few helpful links, a few helpful resource, resources. Certainly uh, um, look into that if you are able to find help with it. One of the things that's interesting in this passage, Jesus is saying that radical steps are necessary. Uh, there needs to be a radical dealing with sin, uh, that, that when sin is present in life, even all the way to the point the example he's giving is eyes gouged out, hands cut off. But here's the thing. Even that cannot give 
new hearts, right? Even that is an insufficient solution. If Jesus is saying that righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we cannot just say that by some sheer willpower and commitment, we're all going to choose to never have a moment of impurity from this point forward, and now somehow we'll be acceptable and righteous in God's eyes. That won't work. What do we need? We don't need extra rules and regulations, though some of those guardrails need to be put in place if you're struggling in this area. What we need for righteousness is transformed hearts. We need a Savior who is willing to cause us to be born again, to give us new desires, new affections, new hearts. That is what Jesus came to tell his followers. And as he's there preaching that morning, uh, that day, as he's teaching people, this is what life with Jesus looks like. And he gives them an example from from, uh, anger. He gives them an example from Adultery. Next week, we're going to talk about marriages with both a, a, a divorce and remarriage and adultery in these situations. Then O's. Then he's going to continue to talk about this. Look, this, this is what life with Jesus looks like. And the only way we experience that life is by a transformed heart through Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus came to teach people who he was and what it looked like to follow him. And then he, he bled and died and willingly offered up his life to be crucified, that his life would be laid down as a willing sacrifice to cover our sins. That's something that we ought to dwell on, contemplate. Christians, when there are immoral thoughts that are fighting for your attention, bring them back to the Savior. This is who Jesus is. This is what he did for me. This is what I focus on. You see, one of my favorite statements is by John Piper, and he says, we worship our way into sin. We have to worship our way out of sin. If, if you find yourself struggling in this area, part of the reason you struggle with it is because you, you like it. You love it. You value it. You treasure it. You may wish you didn't. You may think you don't, but you've given it a, a, an elevated place in your life and heart that it has to be fought against. If you go to the book of Colossians, I'd ask you to flip over there and we'll close with this. Colossians chapter 3. If you're in the Pew Bible, it's on page 984. Colossians chapter 3, page 984 in the Pew Bible. Part of what we have to do is work to reorient our thoughts to the glories of who Christ is, to the glories of his gospel. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Christian, if you're here this morning, how, what's your first line? If, if the heart is where things start, then set your heart on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Look, look, it's not just about the actions. It's about the heart. Purity is found in our hearts before it's found in our actions. So let's put our hearts on the things of God. Some, some of you aren't giving enough attention to who God is and the things above and your hearts are set on things on the earth, no wonder there's a struggle. You will never win that battle. Oh, but praise the Lord that when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In in these you too once walked when you were living in them. Paul has a beautiful hope in saying, listen, your passions, your desires, your heart can be changed. 
What are we doing when we're giving into these temptations? We are worshiping the created. We've taken the creator out of his throne and, and we are giving in to our own version of what we want to value and give worth and worship to. And we need to change that. We've got to say, wait a minute. I'm going outside of God's bounds and I've allowed created lesser glories to replace God. I need to give God back his throne, seek the things that are above, and put to death these things that are outside of God's bound. Let's do that as a people. Say, God, we, 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 we call you our Lord. We call you our Savior. We want you to have our hearts and all of it. Give us new affections. Help us to set our hearts and minds on the things above. Purity is found in our hearts before our actions. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and we ask, I, I'm asking intently with this message in particular that your spirit would take your words and my words and do its work in people's hearts um, in the moments after this message in the days after this message in the weeks after this message Lord, there's many different groups of people here this morning i want to pray for some of them lord there's there's some here with sensitive consciences this morning they're striving to walk in purity they can easily convince themselves of of too much guilt in this area. Father, I don't want them to become callous to the danger of this area. I want them to remain sensitive, but I do ask that you would protect sensitive consciences and help them to be able to sort out truth and know what is the conviction of the Holy Spirit from the accusation of the evil one. Father, there's some who, who might be hating, hanging on to secret sin and unwilling to bring it into the light. Father, bring conviction bring exposure. If these are your children, pursue them with your love and bring it to the light, we ask and pray. May they respond to the loving discipline of the shepherd, knowing that you are for their good and you're working to bring glory in their lives. Father, there's some who love you and they want the sin out of their life. Give them the courage to perhaps take radical steps, whether it's bringing others in to the light, uh, confessing their sins before you and others, seeking for help, um, changing lifestyles and habits. Father, would you would you bring that hope? For the Christian here who is fighting the good fight, Father, help them to set their heart on things above. Father, give us a love for you and your glory that we would put to death the evil, leslie, earthly powers. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.